0: listening to a podcast from the national 70 years ago this week the world witnessed one of the worst atrocities in modern history the 1948 palestinian exodus or nakba is when the zionist entity expelled 700,000 palestinians from some 500 villages the event still marks the basis of israel's illegal claim to what is the ancestral palestinian land this week 70 years later, saw further atrocity. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians living in a besieged Gaza Strip gathered along the border to protest their right to return. What were intended to be peaceful protests took place at a fence the Israeli authorities built to demarcate what they claim is their territory, a claim the UN denounced hundreds of times. But the protests weren't peaceful for long. More than 2,000 Palestinians were injured on Monday. Dozens, including children, were killed by Israeli snipers and tear gas suffocation. While plumes of black smoke from burning tires and the blood of thousands were spilled, not a single Israeli was hurt. Instead, many of them were consumed in diplomatic fanfare. The United States opened its embassy in Jerusalem a day before the Nakba anniversary, turning back decades of policy by recognizing the holy city as the Israeli capital. President Donald Trump sent his daughter Ivanka and his son-in-law, senior advisor Jared Kushner, to mark the occasion.
1: By moving our embassy to Jerusalem, we have shown the world once again that the United States can be trusted.
0: Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu spoke about the right to defend his borders and how Jerusalem is the eternal capital for the Jews.
1: Thank you, President Trump, for
0: having the courage to keep your promises. While he spoke about peace, his soldiers were outside murdering Palestinians. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasrul Westme, and this week we talk to two of our journalists who have reported from Palestine. Jack Moore is an editor on The National's Foreign Desk. He has reported for Palestine in the past and has written several stories this week on the catastrophic events. You have the 70-year anniversary of the Nakba happening within 24 hours of the United States opening up its embassy in Jerusalem. Is this timing intentional?
2: I believe that this move was completely intentional. When Mr. Trump won the presidential election in November 2016 and then proceeded to appoint David Friedman as his ambassador to Israel, Um, David Friedman said in his own words that he was looking forward to working from Jerusalem unlike any other ambassador in the world. One year later, Trump is announcing that the embassy will be moving to Jerusalem uh, a day before the Nakba, on the same day as the 70th anniversary of Israel's Day of Independence. Now, he has done completely away with neutrality in this decision. Um, he, Any US president who cares about neutrality would not have made this decision in the first place, let alone on the day of the day before the Nakba and its anniversary. The Nakba is a, a day of commemoration for What Palestinians feel is the erasure of their heritage from their homeland, the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people from their homes, forcefully by Israel and the creation of Israel and its backers. There's a lot of anger towards Britain about that as well. Um, I remember one time I was in Hebron and uh, a young man came up to me. and said, where are you from? And I said to him, Britain, and he goes, you're to blame for our problems. You caused, you caused the Nakba. And he was referring to the 1917 Balfour Declaration, mm-hmm. which was the statement from Britain about there should be a homeland for the Jewish people. So the anger when you go to the region is, is everywhere uh, among the Palestinians about the Nakba. So for a US president to move the embassy to West Jerusalem and effectively recognize the city as Israel's and not also the Palestinians, is something that's completely galling for the Palestinians and something they cannot accept.
0: How much of this move is symbolic? What are the actual on-the-ground ramifications of
2: of the uh, the decision? Yep. so this move is completely symbolic at the moment. They have a temporary outpost in West Jerusalem, a temporary building. It's actually going to take a couple of years until the permanent embassy is built. So only five officials will be moving into this temporary building in West Jerusalem. So it's largely symbolic at the moment. It's largely the Trump administration saying, hey, we're behind you, Israel. We're with you. We recognize that Jerusalem is yours. And it might be, might be the Palestinians in the future as well. But at the moment, it's definitely yours. It's where your government is. We back. Jerusalem as your capital. But the significant impact of this is that it gives other countries a reason to move their embassy to Jerusalem. So we've already seen Paraguay Guatemala and Honduras indicate that they're going to move their embassies as well and follow Trump's lead. So it opens the door for other embassies to move there and legitimise Israel's control and claim to Jerusalem when the Palestinians believe that it's theirs as well. Um, in 1980, there were 16 embassies in Jerusalem. Israel passed a, a law, Israel's parliament passed a law that said uh, Jerusalem is the united, complete capital of Israel. The UN threw that out. And made all of the embassies leave.
0: Historically, it seems that the US has kind of made its decisions in regards to Israel unilaterally. I mean, the UN has condemned uh, the current policies with the the settlements and whatnot hundreds of times, but it doesn't seem to matter at all to the US, regardless of the president, even under the Obama administration, uh, it didn't really make sense. And then even Trump, while he was campaigning, was saying that he wasn't gonna support Israel. Somehow that's been uh, t- that's taken a complete 180 degree turn. So, I mean, does it at all affect the international reaction to this move? Does it affect at all uh, the U.S. policies?
2: His decision definitely, I think, ostracizes the U.S. and the international community because the consensus is two states living side by side, eventually. A Palestinian state and an Israeli state. What he has done is taken the unilateral move to just say, Israel, it should be, belong to Jerusalem mm-hmm. and has not offered the Palestinians anything in return. So he has done it the wrong way, I feel. He should have done it the other way around and produced a peace plan, produced an offer to the Palestinians and then dropped the embassy move on them. Mm-hmm. He just dropped the embassy move and did not offer the Palestinians anything in return. So they're sitting there going, you're just making moves for Israel but giving us nothing in return Mm -hmm. so what he has done is kind of eroded the international consensus on Jerusalem but what is clear is that the the reaction has been mostly negative towards Trump's move so the UN resolution passed after his announcement in December completely condemned his move and it was overwhelmingly voted for in the UN General Assembly but he's just moved ahead without that so yeah there's a complete disregard of the international consensus, but he has other considerations. I don't think he cares as much about what the UN says as what people are saying at home. We heard uh,
0: Netanyahu speak at the event uh, this week. He said something along the lines that now Jerusalem is the eternal homeland for uh, the the Israelis. I mean, it's been Jerusalem has been shared between Israelis and Palestinians for some time now. It looks poised to change. Are Israelis trying to take Jerusalem for themselves?
2: I mean, Jerusalem will continue to be shared between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The Palestinians still have a stake in Jerusalem. They still live there. They still work there. But there are moves on the part of Israel, in the Palestinians' eyes, to seize what they believe is the entire city for theirs. So Israel says that the city is their united, undivided capital, I mean, if you ask Palestinians that, they would say that's not true at all. They feel like they're treated as second class citizens in their own city. For example, many can have Jerusalem residency, some choose not to have it, some have it withdrawn by Israeli authorities. So if that permit is revoked, they can't work legally, they can't get social wealth, welfare, they can't do many things that normal Israeli Jews can do in Jerusalem. And they feel like some feel like they're being pushed out. Of Jerusalem as well. So, for example, in February I went to Shalfat refugee camp. Now this is a camp that is in East Jerusalem, but they, have, Israel has built the wall around the camp, cutting it off from the city at large. Jerusalem municipality controls the camp technically, but Israel in January actually put the camp under the umbrella of the Israeli military, but which makes it treated as West Bank land. So cutting it off from Jerusalem, Putting under the jurisdiction of the Israeli, Israeli military, and they feel like they're not part of Jerusalem now. They have their services cut off. The Israeli authorities will not service the camp, so rubbish is not collected, electricity shortages, water shortages, and so on. There's lots of crime there. It's like a, it's a small prison camp, essentially, and they say that they're being pushed out. Inside the wall, inside Jerusalem, other Palestinians will tell you that they feel like Jerusalem is being Judaized. Things like road signs being changed from Arabic, Hebrew, and English to just Hebrew and English. Having just Jewish-only residences built in the middle of Arab neighborhoods. These are things that make Palestinians suspect that Jerusalem is being taken by the Israelis gradually. Not like in one sweep, but over time they're increasing their presence in East Jerusalem. And then the main concern, the biggest flashpoint in Jerusalem is obviously the holy sites. Mm. So one concern of the Palestinians is that Israel wants to change the status quo at Al-Aqsa. Now the Noble Sanctuary, also known as the Haram al-Sharif, which Jews refer to as the Temple Mount, is the third holiest site in Islam, the holiest site in uh, Judaism. Now before the Second Intifada began, Ariel Sharon went to the Temple Mount with like, you know, lots of the military and soldiers around him to protect him. That set off the Second Intifada because muslims control that site they feel that jews should not pray there and there are jews who do try and go up there and pray and they want to that's why you have the western walls because they can't go up there because it's still controlled by a muslim trust islamic trust so that's where they're really concerned and where as we saw recently with the metal detectors when they were installed by the israelis the palestinians reacted because they feel they feel like that is the one thing that if that changes that could set off Third Intifada, or a wider war in the region because the wider Islamic world considers Jerusalem to be home to some of its holiest sites. You have
0: the Intifada the first, the second, who knows if we'll see a third, but also you have the Nakba. They've been protesting uh, this day since 1948, since the day it happened,
2: May 15th.
0: Is it any different this time? Is the, as it's been dubbed, the Great March of Return, uh, any different?
2: So I would argue that, yeah, This is different than before. Yesterday was the biggest demonstration, arguably, that Gaza has ever seen. And this built up over seven weeks. Weekly protests, thousands taken to the border fence. Many peaceful protesters. Some, as Israel points out, are allied to militant groups. Many of them, though, are peaceful protesters. And this snowballed into yesterday's events. And what we saw was arguably one of the darkest days in Palestine since the 2014 war, maybe even before that, you know, 60 dead now, including an eight-month-old baby girl, um, a 14-year-old boy, man in a wheelchair with no legs. This just does not look good for Israel in the wider world. And what's worse is that in Jerusalem, they were celebrating the embassy move, and you had American officials there celebrating the embassy move. There's already memes being shared around online at the moment of, you know, Kush the Kushner family and Tr- Ivanka Trump posing in front of tear gas being chucked onto Gazans and and so on. So this is gonna look terrible for Israel and, and, and America in the Muslim world mm. in the Middle East. So yesterday was different than before. It felt different than before and as the casualties mounted it just became more and more serious than other big protests that we've seen and resulted in a big backlash against Israel and America from the the wider Arab world. This was all happening while Donald Trump's son-in-law and
0: senior advisor Jared Kushner begins drafting a Middle East peace plan. To what extent are Palestinians uh, taking into account his his goals, his aims in, in
2: Palestine? Palestinians are completely disregarding any peace plan that the US officials propose. That's what they tell me and that's what they're saying publicly. There's rumors that Trump, after the embassy move, is going to offer something in return, but no one quite knows what. It was rumored that he might ask Israel to withdraw from four East Jerusalem neighborhoods. When I put that to one of the senior advisors of Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, he laughed it off almost, you know, just like, it doesn't matter. They are cut, they've cut all ties with American officials. They're not speaking to any American officials after the embassy move. And they now say that the U.S. has terminated its role as a honest broker in the Middle East. And now what they hope for is that a multilateral approach. They want to go international and use the Europeans, Russia, China to hopefully help them out. But as we've seen with Syria and other issues, we're now in the seventh year, of, eighth year of the Syrian civil, civil war. And I don't know what hopes there are for the, the Palestinians internationally, but that's what they hope for. And... What Nabil Shaft told me, the advisor, he said that they now have a little glimmer of hope because of the Iran deal and Trump's exit. You know, the other members of the the deal said, we're gonna uphold this, we're gonna reject Trump's withdrawal. And he pointed to that as an example of how the US could be ostracized on this issue and actually come together to help the Palestinians. But with the US backing Israel to the billions, No one's stopping the US, no one's stopping Israel from their moves. I don't know who is going to step in. What What we're seeing at the moment is a lot of words, a lot of condemnation, a lot of calling for restraint, concern, alarm. We hear that all the time on Syria, on Gaza. So I don't know how much hope they can really hold out on any offer from Kushner. It will have to be something unbelievable in return to make them sit up after the embassy move yesterday.
0: Willie Lowry just returned from a reporting trip in Palestine. While he was there, he visited several villages in the West Bank and spoke to dozens of locals to better understand their daily struggle. What were people's reactions leading up to the events of this week?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for for having me on the show. I think most of the people that I spoke to in the West Bank, at least, it was a lot of trepidation and concern for what they thought might happen in, in Gaza because they realized that, as bad as their situation is in the West Bank, it's a lot worse for the people of Gaza. Mm-hmm.
0: How important is it for Palestinians to remember? Uh, how important is it for them to make sure no one forgets the atrocities they faced and they, the ones that they continue to live today?
1: Yeah, I think it's extremely important. A lot of the people that you'll that, that I spoke to, at least, would say that while the Nakba was 70 years ago, it's also still going on and that their daily life is in everything they do affected by what happened 70 years ago. When you're in the West Bank, even when you think you're, you're sort of in the heart of it, you're actually surrounded by Israeli settlements. It's really hard to look up at a hilltop and not see a red roof, which is generally what the settlements have. It's kind of disorienting.
0: On a day-to-day basis, do these settlers interact with the Palestinians?
1: Yes and no. Um, I think most don't, And those that do, it's often in a sort of hostile uh, environment. I was down in Hebron, which is one of the, I guess, where most a lot of the big clashes in the West Bank occur. And it's this—it's an old, it's an ancient city. It's it's a hilly city with old winding streets. And old Hebron, which is you know, really in the in the heart of Palestine or the occupied territories, is completely divided. I spoke to to one man who in order to leave his house and go towards sort of the main city he has to go through a checkpoint every time walks out his door, goes down a street and then has to go through a checkpoint whether he wants to buy eggs, you know, pick up something from the groceries store or just see friends, every time. And it's kind of exhausting for him.
0: And sometimes is he denied access to 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 go through the checkpoint.
1: That I'm not sure, but I, I mean yeah, I- Israelis will close the the gates or you know the checkpoint if they think something sort of dangerous is is, is occurring.
0: Mm-hmm. You also spoke to a man uh, who recalled his tale of the Nakba. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about his story and how he feels about it today 70 years after it happened?
1: Yeah, so I spoke with Abu Jamil Masri. He's 84 now and when he was 14 uh, he grew up in a tiny fishing village just south of Haifa. Um, when he was 14, Israeli soldiers known as the Haganah came to his village. And in the course of one night, they defeated or subdued, I guess, the village and expelled his whole family. But in the the process of subduing the village, uh, his father and brother were killed. And, and
0: this is the case with hundreds of other villages. Is, is that correct?
1: Yeah. So – the estimates vary between 400 and 600 villages uh, that were, you know, disappeared in the process of uh, or in the immediate aftermath of Israel declaring itself a state. And just along the coast from what is today or what is Jaffa and Haifa, uh, 64 villages, Palestinian villages, disappeared and only two uh, are left. He now, his town,
0: Tantora in Haifa, he was expelled from his home. He now lives in Fredis. But he's one of the last Palestinians living there. You said each year uh, it sees more leaving. Why is that the case?
1: Well, no. So he is in Theretis is a predominantly Palestinian village. But what happened was most of the villagers from Tantura were bussed up to Freides, which is just a couple of kilometers inland. From there, many were then uh, shipped off to Syria or Lebanon. But a few few stayed, uh, including him. And why he's one of the only remaining left is... It's been 70 years, and most have died by now.
0: Is there a sense of—is it un- uncomfortable to live there? Do the Israeli authorities uh, harass them, or is there any sort of uh, oppression going on?
1: So, in theory, they live in Israel, but for Abu Jamil, he says every time he goes to the village, to to Tantura, where he grew up, he gets sort of um, pushback from Israelis still—they'll uh, you know, go to him and say, stop telling lies or stop, you know, coming here. And he feels incredibly uncomfortable. So the whole time I was with him, he he showed me around what what is left of the village, which is really just a few stone structures. And now it's actually an Israeli beach resort. Um, But the whole time we were there, he wanted to leave. He was very uncomfortable. Speaking of which, I mean, you also
0: interviewed uh, Teddy Katz, uh, an Israeli who was one of the first to research the history of Tantora, what happened there. His findings found the town to be the site of some of the worst violence in, during the Nakba in 1948. In 2000, however, he was forced to
1: retract some of his findings, his master thesis. Why? So it, to me, this is really, this shows the complexity of the situation. There are really two narratives to, to what happened. And what the Palestinians say happened does not jive with what the Israelis say. So Katz interviewed a something like 135 uh Palestinians from from Tantura, and then wrote his master's thesis. So he got uh, an incredibly high mark of I think ninety seven originally, but when sort of his information, his findings became public, he was sued for libel by the veterans who actually fought in in Tantura, and at the time he was he was he got his master's when he was quite old in his late forties, and he actually suffered a stroke during the trial, and so he says his family pressured him into recanting his uh, thesis just so it could be over with. Mm-hmm. And today, he's adamant that, you know, while maybe his findings weren't exactly right, something terrible definitely definitely happened there. And that, you know, when you speak with people like Abu Jamil, that definitely seems to be the case.
0: Speaking of narratives, there seems to be a higher number of young Israelis who are against the occupation of Palestinian lands. Did you find that to be the case? Did you speak to any young Israelis who uh, who shared that sentiment?
1: So this time I didn't, but in, in previous trips I, I have spoken with lots of young Israelis. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, Israel is quite a diverse population. People have all sorts of different political leanings and beliefs. And there's a huge, you know, percentage of the population that – you know, is concerned by what's going on in the West Bank and definitely what's going on in Gaza.
0: Thanks to our guests, Jack Moore and Willie Lowry, for joining us on this episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing. You can find this at the national.ae, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. I've been your host, Nasser Al Wesmi. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.